Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. I'm Karen Swallow-Prior. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader. And we are, of course, here to discuss Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. Thanks for listening in again, Karen. Thanks for joining us. It's been wonderful to have you here. It's been wonderful to be here. I love all the feedback we're getting and the excitement about this wonderful novel. So I'm pumped. So I should tell you a story. This morning here at the bookstore, we did our first like story time for kids. And a mom came in with her kids and they've come in several times before. And it turns out she is a Karen Swallow Pryor fan. Super fan, maybe. Not, she, number, not number one fan, as long as well, not no, number one. No, not one number fan. one. She didn't, she didn't make any claims to be the number one fan. But she said she, she talked about how much she loves you. She bought a copy of the Jane Eyre book. Yay. So, you have, it, you have no. it back in stock because you had sold yeah, oh, out. Yeah. So yeah, oh, yeah, okay, good, good, good. Yeah, we got them back in stock. We've got a nice big section on the shelves. And you know the great thing is they take up a lot of space. So <laughs> they do. <laughs> that's a little secret of turns out of owning a bookstore is that the more things that fill, you know, more space, that's always good. <laughs> so yeah, we are here to discuss uh, Jane Eyre. We're going to discuss chapters 12 through 16. Now that takes us to the end of book one. No, volume one, I guess is what it's called. And then into the first chapter of volume two. And Heidi, could you give us a little bit of a summary of what happened in these chapters? Um, you can do it in broad strokes, of course. We'll give you one minute. How about we do that? And I think that's helpful because a lot of people have said that, you know, have mentioned that they're listening, but they're not necessarily reading along with us this time. It's just a book they've read a bunch. So um, it's just, a, I think it just helps to place us in the story for people who don't know exactly exactly what chapters 12 through 16 cover. They don't, they don't have it memorized that well. All right. I've rambled on right. for about 30 Which, seconds. Of course, does not include any of your contributors <laughs> but, on the podcast <laughs> who, might, who might only vaguely know exactly. what happened in, in these precise chapters. chapters. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm like so glad he didn't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> I can do it if we um, need to. All right. In chapters 12 through 16, uh, the story that's covered in this reading begins uh, with Jane settling into her new life at Thornfield, uh, but she has not yet met Mr. Rochester, but she begins to be curious about him and asks Mrs. Fairfax questions about him and learns a little bit. Meanwhile, she gets to know Adele, who is French young lady, the ward of Mr. Rochester, and is sweet, but doesn't, you know, not necessarily an intellectual genius, but they do form an attachment. After a little while, Rochester does indeed arrive home with gifts for Adele, and he sits down and has a conversation one evening with Mrs. Fairfax and Jane, and he develops a bit of an interest in Jane, uh, asks about her drawings, looks at them, and then they have increasing amount of conversations that seem to create a bond between the two of them. We're not sure yet where exactly it's going to go, but we can see in the narrative voice that Jane is becoming a little bit more attached to this man 
but whether or not she's even aware of it, we're not quite sure yet. And then Mr. Rochester is revealed as being our typical melancholy gothic hero, which I'm sure we're going to talk about soon. And is that... Is that as far as we got? No. Where did we end? <laughs> what happens? Oh, then Grace Pool. Oh, yeah. Okay. So then one night, Jane goes to bed. The fire bath. And yes, the fire and blood. Um, Jay, one night, Jane goes to bed and she hears strange noises, shriekings and laughter. Uh, and she thinks someone is in her room, but in Indeed, it is not in her room, but she gets up to go investigate, and then she finds Mr. Rochester's room is on fire. Big surprise. So she goes in and douses his bed with water and uses baptismal terms, which is interesting. And then he awake. she has a hard time waking him up, even though he's literally like on fire, which is weird. But then she wakes up because of the water, and then he disappears and handles the situation in some, you know, um, Victorian manly way and then returns and puts her back to bed. And, and that's so that's how volume one ends. And that's how and then yes. the, and then the first chapter of volume two is basically her trying to figure things out. She questions yeah, Grace Pool and then finds out that um Rochester is left and then she hears from Miss Fairfax about Blanche, the very pretty Blanche, and then she draws mm-hmm. she draws an illustration of Blanche so that she can look at it and remind herself that she is not Blanche. So that's chapter. 16. Mm-hmm. So this edition by Karen Swallow Pryor has questions at the end of volume one. And they're interesting questions. And they are the kinds of things that we are ined- inevitably going to, I think, need to talk about. So I figured, why not just ask the question in the way that she puts it? Because I couldn't ask it any better. So at the, at the end of each volume, you have these questions. I'm sure you spent many hours trying to figure out exactly what questions to ask and writing questions that you didn't leave in there and figuring out how to phrase it. I did. So please don't ask me to remember any of the questions that that I ended up including or caught or whatever. Right. (laughs) It's like all in my head, but I don't know what's on the page. So, (laughs) well, because you spent all that time figuring out exactly the phrase to put this question in, we will honor that by asking the question in the phrase that (laughs) phrasing that you came up with. So there's a couple of things that I feel like, you know, you included them for a reason. And one of them is just, Heidi talks about the, Rochester's character. And this is this is the part of the book where we we dive into we get to meet him, right? Mm-hmm. We have she has her first encounter with him and then um she has these long lengthy lengthy almost like Shakespearean conversations with him. And so let, let's just talk about Rochester. And you ask the question in the book uh one of your reflection questions is how does Rochester fit the definition of the Byronic hero? And that might, we might as well just start there. We might as well just dive right into how that is the case. So would you like to answer your own question or should we make Heidi answer your own question? <laughs> well, first, did we, uh, did we define Byronic hero earlier in the, in, we haven't defined that in the podcast. Is that right? No, no, not, right, we talked right. a little bit about it in the Rebecca show. Okay. Uh, but yeah. So let's just start there. Yeah. I mean, uh, by because I, I just taught this novel last week, so that's why I'm like, oh, we just talked about this, but it wasn't with you. So, um, <laughs> so the Byronic hero is named after George Gordon Lord Byron, the romantic poet who himself fits this description and also wrote a character um, like this in his his satirical poem Don Juan. So basically, a Byronic hero is 
usually a, a handsome kind of brooding fellow who is mysterious, um, seeming, you know, isolated and alienated and, and haunted by some mysterious guilt. And so Byron was like that. His hero was like that. And then probably Heathcliff from Wuthering Heights is sort of the, the best literary example, which, uh, you know, another Bronte novel. And then we have Rochester, who is exactly this. Don't you think, Heidi? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, we're- He's my ideal uh, Byronic hero, even more than Heathcliff, because he- Heathcliff's like a psychopath. <laughs> and so... <laughs> so um, we, we've learned over the years on this podcast that Heidi has a thing for these Byronic heroes. I do. I have a thing for the so. oh. heroes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, well, go ahead, Heidi. Yeah, I was going to say, maybe we should... <laughs> <laughs> Are we analyzing me or Rochester right now? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, you know from the very beginning that he has some kind of haunted past. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to see, which might not even know much about literature. I don't know. That's probably general. <laughs> it doesn't take, um, a, it doesn't take Karen Swallow prior to know that he's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Thank you. That should be like on a t-shirt somewhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, he is a, he's a complicated man. And we know from their very first conversation, I think that Bronte does an excellent job of characterizing him there, as well as Jane's response to him. It's just like a very intriguing scene. And one thing I really like about Rochester is, uh, in a literary sense, is that there's different kind of shades of him that are revealed in all of these conversations. So he's not a static character. He's not just like this melancholy guy that's always the same in every single conversation that he has or every time he appears. He really is a mysterious person. And he is an ambiguous person. Like some readers have a really strong negative response to Rochester. Uh, and so Bronte did a really good job, I think, of creating, um, even in such a, we've, you know, many modern readers find gothic tropes to be melodramatic and even in a story that that might not be necessarily you know everyday life it's not that believable but he is believable and he and the interaction between jane and rochester is very believable i just like that it's interesting that you say um that it's believable because question 20 that karen swallow prior has in her book is this what is the basis of the mutual attraction between Jane and Mr. Rochester? Does their attraction seem realistic or romantic or both? Now, Karen, did you, you, you say, does it seem realistic or romantic or both? Are you making a distinction between realistic and romantic there? Or, yes. Okay. <clears throat> so, Do you mean it in a literary sense or in like an internal response kind of sense? They're not capitalized. Oh, they're not. Oh, oh, okay. Well, it's, it's tricky because realism capitalized doesn't come until later. So all of the ways, all really, I mean, I, I think Mm -hmm. that the small R romantic is not, no, is not romantic, realistic, that they're opposites. Can we just go back to, because I don't think we got to this last week. Yeah. I'm not good with the chapter numbers, but when, when Jane and Rochester meet, that's in this week, right? That's in this week. Yeah. I mean, the first time they meet when he falls off the whore, I, because I think this is, this is important ankle, yeah. to understand it. Yeah, this is this is this is part of answering the question, and I think I might have put this question in there. But yeah, you did about the the reversal mm-hmm. of the role reversal. 
where, you know, Jane is rescuing Rochester off the fallen horse as opposed to usually, you know, in the history of Tom Jones by Henry Fielding, Tom rescues Sophia off of her runaway horse. In Sense and Sensibility, Willoughby, you know, carries um, Marianne home after she falls. I mean, normally it is the man rescuing the woman who falls. And in this case, you know, Jane, plain Jane rescues Rochester. And so yeah. that that's anti-romantic. I mean, mm. anti-romantic in the traditional literary sense. I mean, there's another way of looking at it as romantic, but it certainly turns on the opposite end, the usual trope. So that's mm. a, I would call that an element an element of realism, even though to, by today's standards, we would call that very romantic, if that makes sense. Well, it was probably much more likely that a, there was going to be a, a gentleman in distress because he fell off a horse than that she was going to fall off a horse. So, so you, yeah, your question 18 is, how is Jane's first encounter with Rochester steeped in romanticism and gothicism? How does Bronte take an anti-romantic turn by reversing the usual gender roles? So we talked about that second part. How do how do we see that the the gothicism part showing up in their first encounter there? Heidi, what do you think about that? I think that the gothic element is found in the setting and in the environment that's happening, right? Like she's gone for a walk and it's very misty <laughs> and she's having this like experience thinking about creatures and and then along comes this, you know, Byronic hero out of the mist and <laughs> it's and he literally needs her aid. Yes. yes. <laughs> Um, well, and I, I think that, I mean, it's definitely like, this is in zero, zero, zero way an allegory, <laughs> but we do have, I think this, like a really kind of brilliant literary use of the disequilibrium that Jane brings into Rochester's life from the very beginning, from their first encounter. He's like, he, he can't find his feet under him in her presence, right? And she has to help him. She becomes then an extension of himself and he cannot help himself without her. And he's aware of that from the beginning. And and um, and she, of course, doesn't know herself quite very well yet as that kind of person. But I think that when we have the romantic element, the gothic element, and then this kind of brilliant use of this trope that's reversed in order to express the nature of their relationship from the beginning. Karen, were you going to say something? No, I, I mean, I'm just agreeing with it. Um, I am looking there. I, I'm sure there is in this chapter, one of the places where he, um, does he call her an imp or a fairy or something in this scene? Because this is yeah. another thing throughout, which again, we might be tempted to say is romantic in a good way, because both small R and capital R. But, you know, eventually he does, you know, he 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 just idealizes her and sees her not as a woman, but as, you know, this creature, this imp, this fairy, all of these other things, which is really not, ladies and gentlemen, not a good thing in love. So just in <laughs> case you were wondering. Um, so, but it's just so, I, again, it's when we summarize it here, it does sound sort of silly. Bronte is just so, when she's writing it, it's not as obvious. I mean, she's very mm. subtle. Like mm. it just seems like the mist and the road, of, of course she's walking on the road at night. That's just a very normal thing for her to be doing. And of course it's misty because that's also a normal thing. And so as she, you know, yeah. she's writing in a realistic way, but when we look back, we're like, oh yes, um, this is what's going on. Yeah. It's like somebody said, it, you know, it felt so stereotypical. And I was like, well, 
Yeah, and novels that take place in North Carolina in the summer have a lot of humidity. Right, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. It might feel stereotypical, but that's but, because those stereotypes derive... It's just because that's what's there. And if enough things <laughs> get written about what's there, then it starts to feel like a trope. Right. Their conversations reminded me a lot of... I said Shakespearean earlier. And it reminded me a lot of Much Ado About Nothing with Benedict and, and Beatrice, except that perhaps they're a little bit less antagonistic toward each other because they don't have history yet. Whereas, you know, we're supposed to have understood that Benedict and Beatrice had known each other prior to the beginning of that play. And I don't want to, you know, do this one-to-one comparison, but I would like to, you know, talk about the way they speak to each other because she has a spirit, if I can use that word, no pun intended, that he is taken by, right? And of course, he he kind of views her, as you s- said, maybe in an unrealistic way, both positively and negatively. But their conversations, they go on a long time. So I was listening to this, I was listening to this section on audiobook last night uh, while I was stocking shelves here at the store. And it was interesting to hear it that way because you know how when you're listening to something, sometimes you can get you either get caught up in it and then you don't realize how much time has passed. I mean, this is true when you're reading it, but I find that I realize how long things are going more in audiobook than in book form. And those conversations went on a very long time. And Karen, I was wondering, is the way that they speak to each other, the way she kind of stands up for herself and contradicts him and even corrects him, and then he, to varying degrees, either fires back or defers to her, was that... Is this something that Bronte was not inventing, but perhaps using in a new way? Like when when someone would have read this at, at the time in 1848 or 1850 or whatever, would they have been either scandalized or impressed by the way she spoke to him? Was that a part of the response to the book? Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the things that um, struck people as revolutionary in a negative way. The people who who mm. you know saw this book as 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 upending social society as they knew at social norms. I mean, this is, there's so many interesting things going on in the way that they converse. And again, we've seen young Jane do this before. She did it with Brocklehurst and she did it at Lowood. So this is typical of her character and personality to just kind of be blunt and be honest, but it's not, it wasn't the norm with Brocklehurst and it's not the norm with a governess and her uh, master, her employer to talk this way, but it is Jane. And he, you know, he's kind of playing both roles. I mean, he is acting as he's using the superior office and power that he has over her in conversing with her, but he's also, you know, he's indulging her as opposed to just like dismissing her the first time she's cheeky with him or something. And so it's just, it, it's a very complicated scene. And, and that way it's it's not realistic, I think, in the way I don't think any governess would last long in this situation, except that, of course, yep, he's, yep, it, it is realistic given what we know, you know, <laughs> his own situation. Right. So it's just very complicated. And I, I, I think this is one. This is one of the things. This is again another one of the scenes when we were talking about an episode or two ago, when about the scenes that stick in our minds that seem to have always been there. Is just this picture mm. in this dark, gloomy room before the fire with a Byronic hero Rochester brooding away um, and finding solace in conversation with this young woman that. He, a 
tracks him, uh, he finds attractive in an intellectual way, mm. um, which I'm sure he doesn't know what to do with because, you know, because he's supposed to like the likes of Blanche Ingram. Mm. Heidi, I'm, you, I'm glad that you mentioned the thing that, the, well, uh, actually, one of you two mentioned that we were, we were talking about <laughs> the, uh, the, the reversal of the gender roles. And it's so interesting. Like She prepares us for these conversations, I think, by having Jane literally standing over him when oh. they meet. Like the, the, I hadn't thought about that before. So whichever of you mentioned, I think, Karen, you mentioned the gender roles. Heidi, you might have mentioned the thing about how she rescues him. But she's literally standing over him and has to maneuver how to rescue him you know, and how to get him home. And then she, and even then she doesn't know who she is. And I think that's important. She doesn't know who he is mm-hmm. and he kind of is figuring out who, who she is. But Bronte's ability to, to kind of prepare us, I think helps make us, makes it feel more realistic when she starts talking to him that way. I mean, the whole book has been preparing us for Jane's character. So Heidi, then do, for you, is it, is there any, I mean, I don't know. It's hard to ask this to somebody who's read it so many times and loves it, but is there any sense in which you are bothered by the fact that she would never talk to like him this way. Like maybe there's a suspension of disbelief that has to go on there. Or do you just totally yeah. accept that? I definitely accept it, but I'm very much aware as, as Karen mentioned, how scandalizing this would have been to the literary community uh, at a time in which the roles of women were very much on the forefront of cultural conversation and were expected to be a certain way. It must have felt to the literary community uh, as though she were directly challenging these established moral codes um, in an attempt to overturn them. Um, and, and so I find that to be a really interesting part of reading the novel uh, because she does that in a number of ways. Um, I mean, she does that with gender roles. She does that with class roles. Um, and and I, I think that what she does for Rochester in this, does he explain, sorry, I, like, I really should do a better job of like discreetly just reading what we're supposed to read per week. Does he have the conversation with Jane when he tells her about his French? Yes, this is where he reveals this section. Who yes. would, yeah, the Adele's. Yeah, the Adele situation. So, one thing that, that on Bronte had to do here in terms of characterization is give us as readers a reason why Rochester would be interested in a woman who does not fit cultural norms, right? And so, in in this story, and we're going to see more, but in that particular story, we begin to understand how he is disenchanted with the woman of the time, right? Um, That she, yes, yes, but I'm speaking specifically of his French mistress, right? right? He explains to Jane what happened with this woman, and then we can understand a little bit of why this typical kind of woman of the time that would have been held up in as in Blanche, not in the French mistress, she would have been scandalous too. But we get to see why he's not attracted to, you know, the typical society yeah. woman. Yeah. And he's looking for somebody different from that and and would be attracted to someone equal to him uh, intellectually and in strength of character. Um, and so she does a good job of not only kind of challenging these roles, which would have been scandalous, but also giving us a compelling internal reason within the novel why Rochester would be attracted to Jane. Mm. 
Karen, you're looking for something. Uh, yes, I am. So I, and it's in this conversation and they're just, there's just so much here that is um, deep and meaningful in the scene, but also is becomes deeper and more meaningful as things develop, you know, even in, to the, in the form of foreshadowing, which, you know, I won't say too much, but <laughs> they're having this deep philosophical, moral, theological discussion about convention and about yeah. what's right and what's wrong. And so when he says, and this is um, in in my edition around pages 240 and 241, I mean, it's a, you know, it's a long novel. So these conversations are long, but, um, you know, he's talking about his good intentions and she says, he's talking about what's right and and his motives and intentions are what make things right. And she says at the top of page 241, they cannot be, sir, meaning they cannot be right if they require a new statute to legalize them. And they go on and she, you know, he's insisting that, well, she says the human and fallible should not arrogate a power with which the divine and perfect alone can be safely entrusted. What power? That of saying of any strange, unsanctioned line of action, let it be right. And then he says, let it be right. The very words you have pronounced them. So, you know, they're having this discussion about what determines what is right. Is it, you know, is it what I will and what I want and what my good motives say? Or is it something external and, you know, and objective, which is what Jane is saying, Hmm. um, which is quite a discussion for, you know, a servant, a governess to Mm -hmm. have with her master. Um, But again, this is this is part of the developing sort of attraction between them is this. This what page did you say that was two forty and two forty one? Okay. Yeah. So we're talking in chapter fourteen there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chapter say. fourteen, and I think he's told her the story. I think at this point, and they're you know, and they're discussing what makes something right or wrong. What? What? So, what is it about her that makes him say things to her like, "I am paving hell with energy." <laughs> and she says, sir, and he says, I'm laying down good intentions, which I believe durable as flint, which by the way, that's just some good writing right there. Those two lines. <laughs> um, good job, Charlotte. But what, so what is it about her that is that not just that he's intrigued by her, but that makes him reveal himself to her mm. so quickly. It doesn't take a long time for him to feel like unburdening himself there's a so there's a there's also he's not he's not giving a lot of detail although he does with the story about the french woman there's more detail to be given but it's there's almost a sort of confession that's happening here and she is she she is the i don't want to go too far but there is like a priestly minister thing going on Mm -hmm. where he is Mm -hmm. unburdening himself to her Mm -hmm. maybe it's just maybe we just maybe that's part of a healthy romantic relationship too, to some degree. So maybe that's the more, the better way to go than the priestly image. But again, the question, what, what is it about her that is so compelling to him that he wants to do this? Not just that he wants to get to know her or he wants to marry her or whatever, but he wants to unburden himself to her and reveal himself to her. No, I have strong opinions about this. Okay. So (laughs) I'll, I'll get, and then, then I want to hear what Heidi has to say, but I mean, I, I think there are definitely two separate things going on here. One is that she's obviously 
interesting in an intellectual way. She's smart. She's bright. She's witty. She's a good conversationalist. I mean, that's part of her character and that's clearly what's going on. But this is also, I mean, Rochester is a narcissist um, and he is someone who has power and authority over her. And if you've ever worked for narcissistic types, then, you know, you know, and those who are sort of smitten with their own power and authority, I mean, that you walk into the room and they tell the same stories over and over and you're just like a sounding board. Um, you know, in this case, I think their analogy of a priestly role that sh- that uh, Jane plays is correct. But people just like to talk and and like it's like that proverbial airplane passenger you know sitting a strange you know she's not a stranger but at this point she sort of is um he's just kind of using his position and authority and power to have someone to unburden himself on and she happens to be you know intelligent and witty and so it develops from there but i think at first he's just he's just kind of being a um a blowhard you know Hmm. So that was one. You said there were two. Oh, the two. No, the, the, I, that was the second one. The first one is okay. just that she is a good conversationalist. You know, it. so so it's yeah. both things that are going. It's his personality and hers. Yeah, Got people it. who are good conversationalists mm. make you want to talk to them. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> um, and then, and so then the first one is the good conversationalist. The second one is he's a blowhard. Is that the summary? <laughs> well, right, right. Except I think the blowhard part might come first. He's just, you know. Okay. <laughs> And then Heidi. she just happens to be a good conversationalist. You're right. Okay. So it's, it works out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so Heidi is Rochester. I like what you're saying. I like, I, I like what you're saying because I think one of the most overlooked aspects of this novel for, uh, uh, for new readers of it is that this is the development of a relationship. It doesn't begin perfectly. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so we have two very flawed people here at the beginning. Now, Jane is, less flawed than Rochester morally. Right. So, but she's wounded. Like she has, she, she has never had uh, a man in her life who is good to her. And so part of what she's originally what drawn to about Rochester is one, he's a man. She's never really been around men. And the men that the man she was around Brocklehurst was abusive Mm -hmm. to her. And so the healing of her soul thus far has taken place amongst kind women and the culture of women. And so um, one of the criticisms leveled against this novel is that Jane just falls in love with the first man she meets. And that can, that's, that, that's inherently wrong, right? But I think what we have ex- is exactly what you're saying. We have two wounded people and two flawed people who are at the beginning of their relationship just the thing each other needs in order to fill the mm-hmm. gaps, right? And then their relationship and without giving too much away, goes through a period of testing in which the reader even is challenged to say, do I even believe in this anymore? But what we have here at the beginning is that exact thing. He's a man with power who's been deeply wounded by women in his life and is not attracted to the per- the kind of person that we are supposed to think that he should marry. Uh, and he is, he's been through a we know at least some of what he's been through, which is bad, and he's coming home. So he's undergoing a great period of crisis in transition. And the first person that he meets is this like good and pure young woman. And so he's in, she, she becomes then the role that David um, tells us, like the confessional role, right? And he specifically says many things to her about her lack of experience, right? Because you're so pure, because you haven't been around, because you don't know what life is like, you know, there and it's safe to um, talk to her. Yes. And also she's sympathetic and she's 
Uh, she's his equal in strength of character and in her mind. And she becomes then, as we saw in this chapter, we don't know what it means yet, but we know that she is drawn in to his a particular crisis in his life through that night of fire and water. And we don't know yet what it means, but we know that somehow she is becoming another, for, like a ministering angel. And I agree with Karen that the words that he uses for her are otherworldly, mm-hmm. right? He doesn't describe her as a person. She's an imp, she's an elf, or she's an angel, right? So he's, those are I don't want to say dehumanizing in the sense of they're intended to diminish her, but they are dehumanizing in the sense that they're not human creatures. He's describing her as he he's putting her in a category. Yeah, he doesn't see her. He's not yeah. trying to dehumanize so, her, but he doesn't see her in right. a realistic way. Yes. she. He sees her, as Karen said, with the narcissist. I don't know if I would say that he, maybe he is a true narcissist, but he definitely is a self-centered, narcissistic kind of person. So he sees her right now in relation to what she can offer to him. The question then becomes, does he ever see her as herself? Because that's going to be part of Jane's development right? And his. And that, you know, that's one of the central questions of the novel at this point. But I do not think we are intended to see this as a perfect relationship right now. And readers who are looking for that are either disappointed or maybe don't see it completely clearly. It's interesting that you talk about the way that they see themselves and see each other, because then we, then the novel turns to this this idea of the painting. Well, there's this conversation, Mm -hmm. of course, about painting where he says, eh, yeah, you're, you're all right. And uh, you're better than that than you are at piano. But then she does this painting of Blanche where Mrs. Fairfax has described her in great detail. This is obviously a very beautiful woman that other women are... Miss Fairfax really knew a lot of detail. Like she really remembered. This is a very... This woman stood out. Blanche stood out. And so she passes that on to Jane. And then Jane uses... Creates this image of this woman that she, you know, can never believe she can never be. And so if we, if we were saying, okay, that comes at the end of 16. So if we're saying, I mean, I know it's not the end of the show yet, but looking forward, how should we view that image, like that, that concept of the way they see each other? Like how should we, what should we look for as we're watching that develop? Karen, in terms of them not just seeing each other, but learning to see themselves as they accurately are. Um, because we're talking about how he doesn't see her in a realistic way. It would be interesting to talk about maybe in a minute. Does she see him in a realistic way? But how will that thing? Okay, let's 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 hold on to that question. But first, let's talk about how do how should we be preparing ourselves to see that theme evolving? Well, this is I mean, this is I think one of the universal themes of so many good novels. Maybe every every good novel, every good story is you know a kind of seeing, and and different writers use different terms like epiphany or or uh, what is the word in Greek tragedy that Aristotle uses um, recognition, catharsis, yeah, catharsis, and it's this yeah. So there's this seeing that's physical, which you know, not to get you know in the end that will become kind of a a thing, but it's also metaphysical and and psychological and moral. That you know, just seeing the truth, seeing seeing it, we, it's in Pride and Prejudice too. Like the the whole idea of of Elizabeth Bennet's fine eyes and her perceptiveness, which turns out to be not as perceptive as she she thought it was. So much of what novels are about are about epistemology, about how we know what we know and whether we really do know. And yeah, yeah and and I, I love I love this. I think I asked a question about it. I don't know, but about the the paint, you know, yeah. this is the world far before, you know, Instagram influencers and social media. <laughs> um, and yet still we have, we have in 
you know, mid 19th century form, Jane looking at an image she has created of herself and an image she has created of, of Blanche, which is such a great name, you know, like Blanche, white, and also like, um, you know, we, there's an older term, but you, when you, if you feel faint or like nauseous, you blanch because you, the blood is drained out of you. <laughs> um, so <laughs> another, you know, I mean, blanch is just all of those things. She's this, this bloodless, white, you know, contentless figure of a woman. Um, but <laughs> in Jane's mind, of course, she's, you know, she, she, and, and in everyone else's, she does epitomize what a, a beautiful, um, uh, wealthy woman should be. And so again, in this age, long before social media, we have, a, it's so realistic that Jane is looking at, you know, comparing herself. She's almost making day. her into a, an, an, in, a non-human figure as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like, um, what are they like airbrush? You know, I mean, it's like, yeah. like we do, we do that, right. She's presented this sort of, I, she's made Blanche into some ideal figure that she can never measure up to in her imagine in her mind and imagination. Um, mm. and that's a struggle that, you know, that's as relevant today as it ever was. So what we're, that's one of the things we're talking about here is how they're all not seeing each other realistically. Mm -hmm. So then let's go back to the question that I just said a minute. I, said maybe we should talk about it a minute ago and then Heidi gave a nod. Heidi, do you see, do you think she sees him realistically, accurately, whatever word you want to use right now to this point? No, I, I mean, she's an adolescent girl. She's 18 years old. This is the first man she's ever been around. It's the first man to show interest in her and he's a very compelling person. And, and so it starts out for her as a fantasy, right? And you hear in her voice that she... She does have like an incredible strength of character. And so she meets his resistance. And that's uh, with um, and like his own strength of character with hers. Like yeah. they they have this tension between them. Witty and, repartee. Yeah. Um, and even his moral failures kind of meet her moral fortitude, right? And they both find that that's very gratifying to both of them. And that's normal. Like I don't. I don't think any great love starts out with people seeing each other clearly. It starts out with, I see something in you that either mirrors myself or fills the lack in myself. And, and, and that is, hmm. uh, and then, and then it has potential to become real, like the velveteen rabbit. Right. And um, so that is, I think we see that with them. Hmm. Um, That's interesting. He's very drawn to her. She's drawn because she has all of this love to give and no object to attach it to. And she's like a helper by nature. And she has, as we've already learned, and like a, a modicum of pride in her own superiority, right? And um, and an <clears throat> utter lack of nurturing in her in her childhood and in her past. And so all of those things make for a woman and the age she's at, she's ripe for love. She meets this, you know, compelling, charismatic man who needs her. Like that's, of course, she's going to fall in love with him. Of course she is. And that's not bad. That doesn't mean it's not real. It just... It's, it's just, it creates a psychological realism, little r realism. It creates a psychological realism within the novel that helps us understand how this relationship is beginning. I love that volume one ends with this paragraph, if you don't mind if I read it, because I think it 
captures what you're saying. So he leaves, she leaves. It's after the fire and water stuff. I regained my couch, but never thought of sleep. Till morning dawned, I was tossed on a buoyant, 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 but unquiet sea where billows of trouble rolled under surges of joy. I thought sometimes I saw beyond its wild waters a shore, sweet as the hills of Beulah. And now and then a freshening gale, wakened by hope, bore my spirit triumphantly toward the bourne, but I could not reach it, even in fancy. A counteracting breeze blew off land and continually drove me back. Sense would resist delirium. Judgment would warn passion. Too feverish to rest, I rose as soon as day dawned. And then that's the end of volume one. So it's like the perfect amount of melodrama for a great gothic novel, right? But it also is representative of a lot of things that are going on <laughs> in her and in her life and in the house and all around, you know, just in the whole story in general. And then, of course, the next day, there's a callback because Mrs. Fairfax says, you seemed, I think she says, you seemed feverish or you, you should go to bed or something. And she's like, no, no, I'm fine. I'm, I'm, I, just, I just want to drink. I don't want to eat or something like that. Um, but I, I think that that paragraph, the, you know, the, from the beginning where she can't sleep to where she's too feverish to rest, that, all that language is so much in keeping with what you're saying there. The way, you know, objective correlative, maybe, mm -hmm. I don't know. Right. It just reminds me of the way, um, you know, we, we talk, if, we, if you've read any, any um, Charles Taylor or any takes on Charles Taylor and the, you know, disenchanted modern world, this is, again, it's the Gothicism and the Romanticism, but there's, a, there's an enchantment uh, with the world that's, that's captured in the writing, like just mm. seeing meaning in, you know, spiritual transcendent, psychological and moral meaning in the physical things around us, even, you know, even, well, we haven't gotten to that point yet, but even the, the cover that we, we chose for this with the, with the mm -hmm. tree that's split by lightning that ha that happens later. I don't think that's a big reveal, but just that, you know, the, just the way there's an understanding of the significance of, of the natural material world. Um, mm. It seems so romantic to us now, but it was not always that way. You know, it wasn't always so far-fetched. Hmm. So you say it wasn't so far-fetched, but how, to what degree did she move that kind of way of writing in, in, in novel form along? Is this, I mean, you've talked about some of the early novels that were precursors mm -hmm. and the ones that were uh, contemporary to her. Is this way of thinking about the novel unique to her at the time? Well, this, I mean, this way of writing is a throwback, really. Right, I mean, the, right. the, so, um, but it still reflects, um, and again, there are, there are autobiographical elements. I mean, you sure. know, the, the, the Brontes, as we mentioned, um, I think on the first episode, I mean, they, they re literally romped around the Heath. <laughs> and so, of course, they were thinking a lot about nature. So other novels were kind of being more realistic and more, um, less enchanted perhaps um so in some ways this just feels like a kind of uh maybe a last gasp at this kind of writing because even dickens hmm. a few years later is writing a, a, in a very different way about the city everything he writes is about the city um and yeah. people and social so um i don't know if that answered your question but <laughs> no i think it did heidi go ahead we you were going to say something no i had a question I'm and then i forgot what it was well said. Do you, so I have two questions that I wanted to ask you guys before we go. The first is related to what Heidi was saying a minute ago. We have a character here who is young. She hasn't been around many men. 
Um, why then does she speak so freely to him? You know, the men she's been around are people like Brocklehurst. Has she just been, she's fed up enough with the Brocklehurst to, to have the courage to stand up to, to the men of the, men of the world? Or is, is there something else about Rochester in particular that she feels comfortable with? Because she's definitely, I've... given that she hasn't been around a lot of men, she's not afraid of him, mm-hmm. that's for sure. Well, Well, and I think that's one of the most interesting parts of the novel. That's one of those questions that I, I find really compelling still. I mean, part of it, I think, is because she hasn't been around very many men and because she's not used to the kind of society that would, um, impress upon her like a flirtatious yeah. kind of manner or tell her like what you need to do to attract a man. Right. Yeah. Um, she hasn't been put through the, the ringer, the, through right. the, through the classes. Finishing school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, she's not Georgiana Reed in other words, yeah. or Blanche or Blanche Ingram or even Adele um, in she, 10 years. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and she, and then part of it, I think is there, um, I mean, and I can't prove this from the text. I, this is entirely speculation <laughs> in terms of psychological, like, I just find it an intriguing question. Um, I I think in her shoes, I would like the fact that he seems to respond to that and then do it more, mm-hmm. right? Um and because that gives her a bit of freedom, which it's very clear that she longs for that, like the freedom of the mind, the freedom of speech, physical freedom, the ability to, you know, this is her pacing back and forth in front of the window again, right? Um, in, in another passage in the future, which is my favorite, favorite passage, he refers, there's like a bird, like I can see in you a longing for freedom, like a bird in a cage, right? And um I think that there's a bit of her that just responds to being responded to. Like he acknowledges, he seems to find that charming and endearing to him. And he wants to engage with that. And I think there's a part of her that like lets that part of her go for the first time. Um, Now, again, I can't prove that from the text. I just think it's psychologically consistent with her character and the kind of the internal dissonances within her. So this is why he has, she has to not know who he is when she first talks to him. Yeah, because she doesn't do it with right. anybody else. She doesn't talk to Mrs. Fairfax that way. She doesn't, and and there's, she, with with everybody else, she's she's actually really conventional. Really, and she conventional. probably would have been conventional if she hadn't met this random guy in the woods who she didn't know she was going to have to look up to. Or if he had treated her, mm-hmm. yes, exactly. Or if she, if he had treated her as a, just a regular governess. So I think that there is something special about their bond and something in him that draws her out and that she finds that like very um, refreshing and, and like this, this outlet for all of this pent up energy within her um, that we know she longs to let that free and just can't find any avenue for that. And he provides that um, for her. And I don't think that is... I, I don't think that particular element of their relationship is dysfunctional or bad. I think it's actually really lovely and beautiful for her sake. Heidi, you've been doing a lot of protecting of their relationship in this show. Do you feel a need, like some kind of need no, to protect them? I've, <laughs> maybe, maybe I feel a need to defend them. But I did say earlier that I agree that it isn't healthy at the beginning. Um, 
and that it isn't what it's going to eventually have potential to become. And that part of the part of the novel is the journey of their relationship, not just like they meet and have this magical connection. Right. At front. I mean, they do have a good connection, but they don't, they are both very flawed and wounded. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but you're right. I do do that with this novel. Um, <clears throat> and partly I think because of Rebecca, because I spent a hundred years of my life during that entire podcast series saying that Maxim was worth fighting for. So, so you've just been conditioned for it. Okay, got it. Now I have to defend my gothic um, heroes. I like my grumpy men. Okay, well, let's. <laughs> let, that brings me to a question that I was just going to ask Karen. And it's about the idea of having sympathy for, for Rochester. Do you think, one, how much sympathy do you have for Rochester? And do you think at this point in the book... How do you think Charlotte Bronte wants us to think about Rochester through chapter 16, where he is now left? Yeah, I mean, we're going to have to revisit that question a few right, times right. over the course of the novel. So, no, at Just, this... you know, mile yeah, marker at, one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think he is supposed to be, uh, you know, a, a Byronic hero, a romantic hero, the older mysterious man who's taken interest in, in the young girl and uh, is treating her like at least an intellectual equal. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's supposed to be... Um, Appealing. Appealing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, I do. Um, But yeah, you know, but Bronte has done some other things to, as we talked about, to, to give some role reversal and to complicate it. Um, And so, and I I don't, I I understand Heidi's um, um, need to defend the relationship because (laughs) I do, I do, you know, and again, when we get to the end, it's, I, I think the hardest thing about reading this novel and judging it well is because our times are so different um, and it's hard to, to, to relate to so many of the things, even just the fact as, as Heidi's pointed out that this is the first decent man she's ever known. So, I mean, we just, we, we just live in a world where we're, we are exposed to so many different people in a variety of ways, whether real life or the internet or whatever. It's just hard to understand how isolated a person might have been in these circumstances, but she was very, very isolated, had very little um, to draw on to measure any kind of experience that she had or any relationship. Yeah. I, it's interesting that the book even makes a point about how little she's read. Like, doesn't she say, he says something, what, did you spend all your time reading? And he, he, she says something like, well, stuff for the classes that I was teaching or something. And she said there was only limited books in the library that we had access to. Um, so, so her experiences even hmm. haven't been broadened they, by. She didn't have any French novels. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, which is, I mean, essentially what they're saying is she didn't yeah, watch the Bachelor right, 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 right. Like, right. <laughs> so she didn't even have that to draw on. Like, <laughs> yep. <laughs> she didn't watch what the Bachelorette. The Bachelorette. <laughs> That's like our modern day equivalent of like the French novel, right? <laughs> like this, like this nonsense. Yep. Shallow. Yeah. Um. Okay, so we've, we're right at about a little under an hour. And well, Heidi, do you want to respond to anything about how we're, the sympathy, how we're supposed to feel about Rochester before? No, but I do want to say that 
I, I think it's a mistake to read this biographically to, to say this is some kind of hang up on Charlotte Bronte's part, but it does add, I think, some depth and some pathos to the conversation about Rochester, knowing that Charlotte did have a, a relationship like this in her life. She went away to school for a short amount of time and she had a teacher there who was married and she, it was very clear that she had a passion for this man who was probably very similar to Rochester and looking at the historical record that we have um, and that he did not return that affection, but he did probably encourage it. So there's, there's, there is like this kind of working out potentially um, of her, of Charlotte's experience, which was very limited uh, in terms of the events of her life because she did mostly just live at home. Um, she also but she didn't did have, have this one kind of high point of her existence. And she ended up marrying a man who was nothing like the romantic hero, but this teacher in her life apparently was. And, um, and so there's, I, I think that that kind of adds, even though I, like I said, don't read it biographically. It's, it's a novel on its own, right? <laughs> it's not the story of Charlotte, but that, that, that you can just, you can sense the emotion of that kind of attachment to that kind of man. And she was writing what she knew, which we've talked yeah. about yes. before. And so yeah. there is a, you know, we, we have to just, even if we can't understand it, I think we have to assent to the fact that there are many realistic elements to this relationship and these dynamics that might not seem realistic to us today, but were realistic at the time. Mm. Karen, before we go, is there anything that we that you feel like we have to talk about in this section that we haven't that we haven't touched on yet? Um, do we just want to talk a little bit about Adele as a character? Um, it's just kind of interesting. Um, I the you know I mean a, the a govern being a governess is definitely a, a stereotype because it's rooted in truth, but yeah. it certainly is interesting for Jane to show up and you know she doesn't know anything about this family or this girl, and it turns out to be this you know this girl with also with a mysterious past um yeah. that you know we do find out in this section but why is this girl who speak has a french name and speaks french at this you know mansion out in the country and the english you know in the english countryside so i yeah i just i think it adds it adds to the plot it adds i mean adele is an interesting character um the fact that she you know loves jane so much um tells us something about Jane. I mean, I think we do judge people rightly by how children respond to them. Um, so in that way, the character of Adele adds, adds, adds a lot, you know, not, you know, she's in the background in terms of the major events of she the plot. She doesn't even speak but, in English. Right. 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 Um, but she just adds some color, I think, to, uh, to this story and to Jane's life. And it does seem like from a, you know, practical meta standpoint she helps us get to know jane a lot mm -hmm. it helps us understand Ro like rochester's taking care of her but also the way he interacts with her both tell us a lot about him in sort mm -hmm. of different ways mm -hmm. so she is a she's a character that's i don't know what's the character version of like a sounding board like it she reveals a lot right. about the people a foil. a foil a foil yeah yeah, yeah. Heidi, what were you going to say? Well, and I think she also tells us, gives us insight into the way that that society viewed children, which we already saw with Jane and the difference between her and her cousins. Um, but there, it's it's pretty clear from the text that it is that that it is assumed that Adele is going to be like her mother, right? Kind of shallow and frivolous, mm -hmm. um, obsessed with clothes, and not just because of 
not just because of nurture, but also because of nature. There is an assumption that the child will have inbred within them of the sins and um, the glories or whatever of their of their family and where they came from. Um, heredity, yes, blood always tells, right? That kind of idea. And so with Adele, we are kind of preconditioned to see her as sweet and charming, but pretty shallow. And she's probably going to turn out fairly frivolous. Um, and Jane can kind of do the best she can, right? Yeah. And I think that that's pretty typical of that attitude about children. Um, and, and kind of this assumption also that harsh treatment of children is, um, is expected from, from, from society and, and not challenged at all. We already saw that with Jane. Um, and then I think we'll see that also with Adele in the coming chapters. Um, and that, that provokes sympathy from Jane. We do get even here, Jane, Mm-hmm. The part where she, they ask for her to get time off, and Jane says, "Oh, I remembered when I would have liked to get time off," <laughs> and so she has, a, you yeah. know, the the way she interacts with them, as Karen said, is different. Okay, so I have one last question that I wrote down earlier in the show when we were talking, and I, I make this the last uh, last thing for today. Karen, you talked earlier about how Charlotte Bronze upends, or however you want to put it, some of the the norms, the the gender roles, and things like that, and that got me thinking. Has there ever been or could there be a truly great novel that doesn't in some way do that? Uh, yes. Tess of the D'Urbervilles. Does not? Does not upend. The, Interesting. The, now we have to do this novel. <laughs> like before I was kind of like on the fence, but now the Interesting. Three <laughs> yes. <clears throat> okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's actually that's what it's doing is not doing that. Is to not do that though? Actually, doing it? Are you commenting uh, well, on? Har- yes, yes. Hardy Hardy is 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 commenting on that, but he still presents a story. So that so yeah. So maybe that's cheating. Maybe my answer is cheating. But um, <laughs> <laughs> he is he is questioning that problem, but still he he does it by presenting a story in which that tragically doesn't happen. Mm. I think it's hard to tell with Shakespeare sometimes. Mm, like, is he, yeah. Like, is, you know, he doesn't, you don't always really know. Is, is this, he being subversive? Is he making any, <laughs> yes. Or is he kind of upholding and utilizing societal norms in order to tell a story? It doesn't mm-hmm. always seem like he's challenging them <laughs> even. And I think that's quite an achievement in itself in, in such a tumultuous time as Elizabethan England, um, he kind of presents them to look at, like, here, look at this. But he doesn't always take a stand. And I, I find that continually fascinating about Shakespeare. This is a really good question, David. I'm glad. You- uh-huh. Yeah. uh-huh. And I would say, so the the earlier novels also did did not, like Pamela doesn't. Um, Pamela upends social class, but it doesn't upend gender norms at all. Right. Um, well, so I guess what I was wondering is maybe there's a degree to which that upending is like to at least ask the question and, be, and begin to consider mm-hmm. what it might look like to upend either social yeah. class or gender norms. Right, or right. Can you have a great book that doesn't attempt to do that or contemplate what would happen if you did do that? Yeah, can you have a great book that doesn't upend anything? No. Is, is the, <laughs> oh, I have one though. Oh, and the Aeneid. It, the whole oh, point of the Aeneid oh. is to uphold the glory of Rome, right? That's it, it and it punishes the characters oh. that don't. 
Maybe it, and it rewards maybe the, the characters that maybe do. Maybe the, the idea of novel though is right, right. So that yeah, the that would be the difference between ancient and modern. Yeah, modern, true. right? Yeah, true. No, I think that that's true. But maybe I mean, to to your point, David and Karen, maybe what a it, it's a novel like Jane that actually takes the genre from mm-hmm. you know forward moves it forward and makes it better by upending mm-hmm. those up to your point about pamela right mm-hmm. like people don't really read it unless you're a literary specialist mm-hmm. or you're taking it in school like i probably would only read it if i had to because i would expect it to like fit, have just all the regular tropes in it mm-hmm. right although but, Karen, but you would argue that's a shame because right? it's challenging them <laughs> maybe yeah no, but nobody maybe reads pamela outside the classroom so no you're, you're not alone there <laughs> but no i think this this really is the difference between ancient and modern and that's why Shakespeare's kind of, uh, you know, a little right. both. Yeah. 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 Wow. Good question, David. Interesting question. Mm-hmm. Is the, so is when we talk about this idea of upending norms and, and so forth, that's different though than talking about conflict. Right. Because every novel has right. some, right. some sort of a conflict. Every, every story. Every story. I mean, does, there's no yeah. story without a conflict. Right. But um, whether it's, you know, because, I mean, obviously, um, the, the ancient Greeks had a lot of conflicts to write about. Um, yeah. But, yeah, yeah. it, it has Mostly to between do, the gods. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, whether it upends the status quo, I guess, is the dif- maybe the difference between ancient and modern. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, in, in a way, it seems like the... the, the mo- I mean, this is not profound, but the the moderns are consumed with upending it, and the ancients are consumed with preserving it. Yeah, yeah. And that yeah. Make, maybe maybe that's why so many of the the greatest novels that we all look back at are the ones that are kind of in between there. Like now, we're completely obsessed with overturning the status quo, but then there were a lot of novels in Jane Eyre's nice period in the nineteenth century that dipped their toe in it. Mm-hmm. They were interested in under, asking what would happen, but they were also saying if you look at this world we live in, there's still value in it. Mm-hmm. So they didn't, they weren't ready to go all the way there. Right. And, well, and so many of them, we don't even recognize how subversive right. they're being. Like who picks That's up true. Dickens right. and thinks this is going right. to be some sort of like subversive right. novel. We think he's going to be kind of like stuffy and boring or Pride and Prejudice. Right? until you understand, right. 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 Until you understand something about the, the mm-hmm. social context and think, Whoa, he's doing something really radical mm-hmm. in a Christmas Carol. Right. right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Even his short books. His mercifully short books. Uh, <gasps> no, I'm just kidding. Oh, them's, them's fighting <laughs> words. <laughs> no, uh, no, he likes he likes his model, his novels real modern, <laughs> pared down. Shakespeare's <laughs> <laughs> books aren't long. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, what's your favorite Dickens, Karen? Great Expectations, probably your... for sen- sentimental reasons, but still. Yeah, it is because you've read it so many times. You don't you don't remember when the first time. No, I do remember the first oh, okay. time. It was an abridged version in in seventh or eighth grade, and I fell in love with it. Mm. Was it the great illustrated classics? It, it, there were pictures, so I don't. Yeah, I don't know. It might have been. Yeah, I just remember reading it, reading those a lot of those classics as like a nine year old or whatever. With where there's a text this was on a one little page bit older. This was in junior high, so I okay. I don't. Yeah, probably was, those were younger. Thick. Yeah, yeah, it was thick, but it wasn't the whole thing. Okay, okay, yeah. Heidi, what's your favorite Dickens? A Tale of Two Cities. Hmm. They're so different, they're but so they're different. both good. Yeah. yeah, David. Yeah. Well, do I have to say Christmas Carol now? <laughs> I know, yeah. It's the shortest. Um, I like A Tale of Two Cities too, probably. But I haven't read Dickens in a long time. And I feel like I need to go back to him. It's been 10 years since I've read any Dickens, which is too long. Mm-hmm. So I need to go back and 
read it now, which is what you would say about now dogs. that I have, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now that I have children, that probably changes the perspective a little bit too, because that just changes your perspective on everything. That's um, true. Okay, what are you looking forward to in this next section? How do you go first, and then Karen? I'm looking forward to more Jane and Rochester. Just more Jane and Rochester. All right. More Jane and Rochester. Those conversations, like conversations are always my favorite part of any novel. So I like how these like long, rich conversations with lots to think about and watch their That's relationship. That's why you like it, uh, I love it. Rules of Civility. I love Rules of Civility. Everybody needs to read that novel. I love that novel. Yep. Does the gypsy show up for next time? I think so. Next time. Yeah. Okay. I'm looking forward yes. to the gypsy. Weird. Yep. <laughs> I'm looking forward to talking to the two of you about the gypsy. <laughs> so weird. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks to everyone who's been listening. If you want to join the conversation, you can do so over on the Facebook page, of course, or you can email us. You can, the best place to email is probably david at goldberrybooks.com. If you have questions or anything that you'd like us to address. And then at the end of a couple of weeks, we will, of course, do our Q&A episode. Thanks, as always, to, to Karen and to Heidi for for being here and Karen it really is a it's an honor to have you here you know once a year at least um, but thank you for doing the book thank you for joining us and bringing your insight and, and wisdom to the show uh, the pleasure is mine it's so fun to be with you guys well for Karen Swallow Pryor and for Heidi White I'm David Kern thanks so much for listening until next time happy reading happy reading